All the episodes you will hear on this podcast are the audio versions of the video content on the Great Light Studios YouTube channel. If you would like to watch the video version of this episode, you can find a link in the show notes. For those of you who may not know, I do rely on monthly financial supporters to continue doing everything I do through this platform. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I would just assume Jesus prayed more than just this one time. Um, The fact that Jesus doesn't pray in this one instance for the world is not proof that Jesus never prayed for the world. And so there's also a bit of an argument from silence, I guess, in a sense, that happens here uh, as well. I pray that you can confess that, that your soul delights in and rests in entrusting all things into the hands of a loving, wise, and sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his own will unto the glory of his own name. And I want to continue celebrating that truth with you, in particular, the sovereignty of God in the redemption of his people through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to do that by defending the controversial doctrine of particular redemption, the biblical teaching that Jesus' death atoned for the sins of only God's elect people and not all without exception. We'll look to several passages of Scripture this morning, but I want to begin by reading the first 10 verses of John chapter 17, as so many of our thoughts will retreat back to this glorious prayer of our great high priest. John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And then skip down to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Keep reading. 
Keep reading. God give grace. Keep reading. Oh, keep reading. <laughs> oh, I'm not muted. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was saying that out loud, wasn't I? Oh, man. Keep reading. Calvinists don't want to read the texts that, that, that contradict their statements. Uh, one, he's praying for his apostles, obviously, yeah. because he even accepts, he gives the exception of, of Judas. But then he jumps down to verse 20. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in through their word. In other words, whose word are we believing through? The apostles who wrote the truth of the scriptures by which we may hear and know the truth of God, the gospel, and be saved. And look at what verse 21 says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's what... That, what I don't think he's trying to avoid scripture. I can't accuse him of that by any means, but why wouldn't you read that so that the world may believe that you sent me? That's an obvious universal passage saying that God wants the world to know that he is sent by the father, the the or, glory I mean, which you gave me given. Oh, let me just finish this. The glory which you gave me given that to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. And so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. I, I don't know any more universal kinds of prayer than that. And the fact that he doesn't read it just screams to me that he's not being unbiased with regard to these doctrines, that he's not willing to, to read the entire context. Sp speaking of the world and, and the desire that God has for the world to know that he is who he says he is. Anyway, I, I had to get that out. Sorry. No, 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 I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, you know, he, he started off for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you've given him. Now, this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God. And so you see it, the, the, the whole focus here is on the totality of hum humanity. It's not, it's not just this Calvinist elect. This is Jesus came for the world. It, it, God sent him for the world. Now, yes. it, there are conditions for salvation that would be. To, to have faith and trust in, in Christ. But what he's doing is he's conflating the two and he's, he's moving the goalposts around and he's like, let's read this. Let's jump down here. Let's read this. Let's not read that. And, uh, and oh, we've proven it. We've proven it. And I, I call this a paper mache. It, it's a paper mache atonement theory, paper mache view of election. They're, they're cutting the texts out and they're laying it over this grid that they already presupposed. And they can point people that already presuppose that same grid and say, look, it has the passage right here. That means it's biblical, but they're not doing it in context. And and I think this is pretty much par for the course with his handling of the of the text. And one of the one of the key things that I notice, you know, I'm kind of, I may be an, an odd duck here because of my emphasis on early redemptive models, but it seems like in this whole conversation, the reformed ignore utterly the redemptive work by way of the incarnation. So they'll they'll affirm that that Jesus became a human, but they'll deny that the act of becoming a human, like us in every respect, according to Hebrews, was healing human nature. It was it was it was a balm to the totality of humanity. The very act of becoming flesh, the divine taking up our nature to heal and redeem us, that has benefit to every human. Every human has had benefit because of this, and they they kind of ignore the whole. Uh, aspect of of the word becoming flesh and taking up our nature, and it's a very narrow understanding of the redemptive work of Christ 
But I think that goes with a very narrow understanding of, of a few passages from Scripture. Well, Jordan, when he says, I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those you've given me out of the world, how can you not see that that's obviously supporting Calvinism? Because he's not praying for the world. He's praying for the elect that God has given to him out of the world, those unconditionally chosen before the foundation of the world. He's not praying for the world. He's praying for his elect. How can you, how can you ignore that, Jordan? And you're I muted. can't. I actually, I actually, oh. you're muted. There you go. Yeah. Sorry. I was, was going to say, I can't deny it. And that's why, actually why I converted before we got on here. So <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and drop off. Okay. No, you know, <laughs> you know now. I think the important question, at least one of the important questions that we should ask when reading through this text that I, I, I got through about 50 minutes and I never heard him ask or bring this up. And I'm assuming he doesn't get to it. But the question I would ask when you read through this text, you see Jesus praying a prayer at a specific time for specific people. And he mentions that I'm praying this for these people. I'm not praying it for these people. One question we should initially ask is, well, what's he praying for? What's he praying for? And what do you see him praying for? Well, he's praying for things like that believers, those who have believed in him, that they would be united, that they would be made one, that they'd be sanctified, that they would, that they'd be protected from the evil one. Now, you know, if you just take those things, the specifics of what Jesus actually prays for, and then take that back to this question of, you know, well, why, why isn't he praying for the world then? Well, it's, it should be quite obvious. Why would he pray those things for the world? Why would he pray for the unbelieving world that the world would be made one with believers? Why would he pray for the world to be sanctified in the truth or protected from the evil one when they're under the domain of darkness? Yeah. He's, he's not praying. And really, this probably ties into a little bit the same idea John has in, at the end of his first epistle when he talks about not praying for there's those who sin unto death. I'm not saying to pray about that, he says, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And so, you know, so there's, there's that, there's that initial question we should ask, well, well, what is he praying for? And when you just simply ask that question, I think it becomes clear why he's not praying for the world. Yeah. And it it seems like people ignore or forget the context of how significant this time period is where Jesus is, here on earth incarnation uh, the incarnation of christ is huge and for him to say you know you've given me these people i'm training them i'm giving them the word i'm teaching them these things and i don't want you to take them out of the world because he's about to leave the world but he's saying that i don't want you to take them out of the world leave them in the world which is obviously contextual of what's happening right then at that time just like we we see from peter over in acts chapter 10 verse 41 ish where he talks about the those who were appointed as apostles chosen by God to bring the word to the rest of the world, he's obviously got a special group of people that he's chosen, that he's marked out for these purposes, that he's given these words to, and he's praying for them specifically. And then he prays, verse 20, for those who believe through their message so that the world may know, so that the world may believe even. And it, it baffles me that a Calvinist can read that entire context and still walk away with the interpretation that God's only praying for this special elite elect and and not for the world of sinners. 
Um, Jason, I'm curious, and we'll try your internet here again. You're still a little bit uh, fuzzy there, but we'll see hopefully if your voice comes through. Do you remember, did you use this text when you were a Calvinist yourself? I know I did. I'm wondering if you use this text as a Calvinist and kind of how that shifted in your own experience. It's interesting. You can all, unless they own, first of all, am I coming through better? Not really. <laughs> I'm going to try it. Let me, I'm going to out. Okay. Is this good? Well, the, that question was good, but we'll see. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My goodness. All right. So the first sermon that I preached was out of John 17, specifically verses 20 through 24. Talk facts of the apostles now sharing the, the gospel through the world and that everyone would. But, you know, I had to provide context through 17 succinctly. What's interesting is try to push anything explicitly in the text to sway into Calvinism. I did make some like general statements like God's, you know, decree or God's salvific love on particular people, owners, you know, just some of those phrases. Is is this coming through okay? Or is this still it's quite a you still have a little lag, but it is coming through better. Okay. Looking back through it, I'm like, I I it, it was not a heavy Calvinistic you know, focus I did when I went through that text. So, but I had many of teachings in the church that I would opt out. I mean, it, it was, it was all over the place. It's almost like when I had the opportunity to preach, I didn't want to preach on because it was just conversations in small groups and everything yeah. else all over the place. Yeah, I had some of that too. I was in a little country church that was not traditionally Calvinistic, and there were times in which I, I purposefully kind of kept Calvinism out of the sermon and wouldn't refer much to it just because I didn't want it to be controversial. And so I, I kind of even avoided sometimes a kind of a closet Calvinist, as they as they call it, and so kind of went through that even, even myself. But let, let's continue with the video, and we'll come with, uh, see where else he goes with this. Magnify the worth of your son. Bring benefit to your people, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, when I say that we believe in a particular redemption, I mean that Jesus' death did not reserve empty seats in heaven to be filled by whoever would claim their seat by believing in him. Jesus died to pay for the sins of specific sinners in particular, those whom the Father gave to the Son, those whom Christ, the Good Shepherd, knew by name. The question is, in whose place did Christ stand as a substitutionary sacrifice when he bore the full fury of his Father's righteous wrath against sin? And the Bible's answer is, only those who will never bear that wrath themselves, namely, the elect alone. Go ahead, Warren. Now, I, I, I understand I may be the odd duck here because of my atonement views, okay? So allow me to provide a, an external critique. This gentleman, Mr. Riccardi, is going to, in the course of this video, say that if you affirm like a provisionist type of view of the work of Christ, that you're splitting the Trinity wide open. But the articulation of the atonement, which he just gave, has a, a divided Trinity in and of itself. 
So I just want to note that, that when you have the father pouring his wrath on the son, the, the son is capable of forgiveness. The father has to vent his wrath. The external critique that I would offer is that that articulation itself is, is presenting a divided trinity. And I don't think he's considered those entailments. You know, there are, there are Anselmian models that are less, let's say, uh, hostile towards the trinity. But I think his articulation of PSA that he just gave is, is, is problematic with regard to the Trinity. So I may be the odd duck out here, but I want to at least put that forward that I don't think he's being consistent in this video with saying, well, we want to protect a unified Trinity. I, Trinity. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he does that. He does that. Um, Jordan, did you, did, did you, you uh, want to jump, uh, jump at that? I'm hearing my, I'm hearing my, my voice my back voice in back. repeated there. I'm not sure. Yeah. Warren muted and I think it stopped there. So I'm not sure it was come through Warren's or Jason's or where, but nevertheless, I, w I want to throw this up on the screen because I'm curious, Jordan Hatfield, you, you probably listened to more video than any of us did. I didn't listen to hardly any of, of it yet. I thought I'd just go live with y'all to listen to it. But does he even address First John 2, 2, he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Uh, does he even address that particular passage or is he just doing more of a positive presentation regarding, you know, the Versus he picked out of John 17. I, I think he, for the most part, just does a positive presentation. I didn't hear him especially mention first John two, two. I think he didn't get into the, you know, the, the provisionist proof text, at, at least as far as I got into it. I, I, yeah. He does come back though. He, I think he comes back around to John 17 a few times that kind of reemphasizes the fact that Jesus does not pray for the world. And so that was kind of his starting point, and I do think that's that's quite a big emphasis. At John least a two few two, more for, for me, John two two is one of those proofs for me that that there are some people who are so beholden to their particular theological stance that no passage in the world. If we, like I said, if we we uncovered the autographs of Paul from some new letter that we never had before, and we we had some statements that were one right after the other after the other supporting a universal atonement and you know supporting the individual human responsibility, all the kinds of things that I teach, I, I am thoroughly convinced that some of these guys would not budge inch even after seeing evidence to that level based upon how they've reacted to first John two, two, for example, because mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons that I think Amaraldianism four point Calvinism has become so popular among the reformed is that it's just such a difficult doctrine to really support. You can, you can hold to as a Calvinist, a universal extent while still having Calvinistic, you know, sociological perspective and why, why some Calvinists like this so are so adamant about supporting a, 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 you know, a limited or particular extent of the atonement is baffling to me, especially after David Allen's work and so many others demonstrating how most of the reformers, if not all of them prior to Dort and especially Calvin and others most likely held to a universal extent of the atonement while, you know, still, still holding to a, basically a, a, a Calvinistic sociological perspective, regardless. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they probably would would run and, and say that that it was sufficient for the whole world, but it was only efficacious to his elect. 
So that's probably where they would go, but that's not really addressing the what the passage says. It's more of a, a handling of it. It's a dismissal of it, but I don't think it's an exegetical handling or even a, a refutation of our understanding of the passage. And it, oh, sorry, don't go ahead, jump. Off. Yeah, go ahead, Jordan. Well, I was just going to say, Leighton, Leighton, you were emphasizing the fact that you know John seventeen continu- continues on, and you're saying keep reading, keep reading. You're emphasizing the fact that he he says that these believers he's going to send back into this world, and so is the reason that you're emphasizing that just for clarity is is because this he's emphasizing the fact, and he'll go on in the sermon to emphasize that you know Jesus makes sure to specify that he's not praying for the world, but then this this very same world that he just said he's not praying for now he's sending his disciples back into this world. And so, so is that kind of what, what you're getting at is that, that maybe this, this kind of mention that he's not praying for the world does not equate to, therefore I have no interest in engaging the lost world and in drawing them to myself. Perhaps that's just a very massive assumption taking place on the Calvinist part when they, they look at this. Yeah, and and I think Calvinists, obviously, I, I'm sure this Mike is is one of them that's still evangelistic, and they still see the need for, you know, people going to preach into the world, maybe for re- different reasons than we do, because they believe that they need to get out there and let the elect know that they're elect, whereas we would be making an appeal that to to be reconciled because anyone and everyone can be reconciled. We would be calling everyone to reconciliation because we believe everyone can be reconciled. Call everybody to repentance because we believe everyone can repent. Whereas the Calvinists obviously don't believe that. They they believe that only the elects can actually believe and repent because they were chosen unilaterally before they were born and irresistibly or effectually caused to do so. And so yeah, there there's a lot of seeming inconsistencies when you begin to really draw it out, but 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 I am thankful for the fact that at least they're not hyper in the sense of saying, "Hey, we don't need to evangelize." We can be thankful for that, and hopefully, their children's generation or their children's children's generation don't go that way because that's been the tendency over the last you know hundreds of years that this 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 systematic way of thinking surges up and then it ends up killing itself, eating its its own when hyper Calvinism begins to take over the movement. Because hyper-Calvinism, whether you like it or not, is a more consistent form of Calvinism. It's a less biblical form, but it's it's more consistent within the logic and, and the entailments of the system. And therefore, it, it naturally progresses down that path and, and ends up eating its own, in my experience. And right, let, let, can I just oh, make ahead, one, just one more point here? Because I, sure. I, I don't know how far we'll get into this, but I do know he'll continue to come back to John 17. And <clears throat> my initial point was just to emphasize that we should, in reading this, I think we should ask the question, you know, what is he praying for? Jesus says in this specific prayer, he's not praying for the world. Okay, then what is it that he's not praying for the world? And I think you can, again, you see that the things that he is praying for are things that are very applicable to believing people. And it would make little sense to pray these things for a a world that is yet in rebellion and unbelief. But Further than that, I think, you know, the whole underlying sort of assumption that seems to be in Mike's presentation, he never comes out and just explicitly says it that I can remember. But the underlying assumption seems to be that Jesus was was 
praying for the the salvation. And actually, you know, come to mention, I think he might kind of use some certain terminology to kind of allude to that, like that. Actually, I think I have the minute mark. It's kind of coming back to, to me as I'm talking, but he, he right, actually right, right. does get to that where he says that basically Jesus, like he kind of presents us as how, how could Jesus pray to the father, father, you know, bring these people to heaven with me and then have the father turn around and, and reject that prayer. And so my, my point is that if you read this prayer in John 17, what you will not see Jesus praying for and asking for is for the salvation of the disciples or for the belief of the disciples, the disciples. He doesn't pray, father, I thank you that, that through this prayer, you're going to cause them to believe and you will continue to cause them to believe. And I pray for, for those in the future who will believe because because I'm asking you now to bring my elect into faith. So right. he, he's not asking, he's not praying to the Father for salvation. And so the fact that he is not praying for the world, this specific prayer, is not yeah. therefore equivalent to, to this idea that Jesus didn't want to save that same world that he's not praying for. And proof right. that in right. one specific instance, in one specific prayer, I would just assume Jesus prayed more than just this one time. The fact mm-hmm. that Jesus doesn't pray in this one instance for the world is not proof that Jesus never prayed for the world. And so there's also a right. bit of an argument from silence, I guess, in a sense that happens here as well. Right. Yeah. Warren, do you want to comment on that? No, I, I just think it's, I think that a lot of their presuppositions and metaphysics are doing the heavy lifting and then they're just slapping these proof texts on top of that. So, you know, Jesus comes in and he says specific prayers for those that are following him and believing in him. And then he yeah. stops and he prays for those that would come to faith through what they're doing. And I don't think the Calvinist would come in and go when he's praying for the apostles, the disciples, and those that actively believe in him, that he's not praying for the unregenerate that would come to faith. They're going, oh yeah, well, he he means that later. So they, they're consistent right, in right, that. Right. But then when they get to the rest of the world, they go, the cog disc kicks in and they're like, no, that's that can't be for the unregenerate non-elect, you know. The, so I think they have these categories that they're just injecting into this and they're not even aware they're doing it. Right, here we go. Atonement is an efficacious atonement. It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. So much is that the case that Jesus himself casts the very glory of his atoning work in terms of its efficacy. Look at verse 4 of John 17. The Son says to the Father, I glorified you on the earth. How, Jesus? How have you glorified your Father? Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The Son's saving mission is, is glorifying to the Father because it was a work that was accomplished and not merely provided or provisional or potential. There are those who deny these truths and call themselves provisionists. We are not provisionists. We are accomplishmentists. Oh, that's fun. So it's either... God provides or he accomplishes. Remember, it's the false dilemma of the Calvinistic system. They always have to paint it in this this false dilemma. It's either an actual atonement or it's just it's just a, a, p- a potential atonement. And the, oh, of course, the actual sounds a lot better 
So that, that that's what we were talking about earlier. They make Calvinism sound so much more pious. Oh, don't you want to believe in an actual atonement versus just a potential atonement, this namby-pamby weak potential atonement? As if, as if it's one or the other. And we have to point out that false dichotomies is when you try to think there's only two options, this option over here or this option over here. Therefore, you should pick this better option over here. That's what false dichotomies are. It's a debate fallacy, okay? When the truth of the matter is, both of those are true on provisionism. There is a prov- provision of atonement for all that's potential for all. In other words, he's provided the salvation and gift of salvation for all people. Therefore, when they deny it and they reject it, they're all the more blameworthy for that. They're not just rejecting a God who first rejected them. They're rejecting a gift and of God. They're rejecting a love of God. There's nothing for a reprobate to reject on Calvinism. They don't have anything to reject. Okay. So, so yes, there is a potential, but there's also an actual. He, he, he makes it possible for all, but he actually saves those who believe. And so both are true on provisionism, but you can't say that because it seems way too reasonable. If you're trying to, you know, get your audience on your side and you're trying to paint this picture of it's either this potential or it's actual. And the truth of the matter is, no, it's a potential for all and it's actual for those who look to the provision in faith, just like the serpent lifted in the desert, just like the blood on the doorpost, just like every other example of atonement throughout scripture. Are we supposed to believe every other example of the atonement was provisional, but not the cross? And then why? Because of reasons? You've got to establish that biblically, brothers. You can't just use pithy little statements and false dichotomies in order to establish your doctrine. And we're not gonna we're not gonna just sit back and be quiet when you continue to paint these pictures of what we're believing and what we're saying as if we, as if we haven't thought through these things. We're seeing through your smokescreen, brothers. It is a smokescreen when you use ad hominems, when you use false dichotomies. When you use all these other debate tactics to make it sound like or look like your system is more pious or better than it really is, and in love, because we love you, we're going to call you out on it. We're going to plain it out really plain and simple for your audiences to see how it is you're misleading them to believe something that's not biblical. Jason, jump in on that. I can just tell by your face you're ready to I know I'm I don't really have anything to add so the, the nodding is just in full agreement. <laughs> Elena's on I the was, side chat. Y'all y'all say hi to Elena. Yeah, she's hey, been Elena. on at least two of our broadcasts. I know Alana, uh, Warren sorry. Alana, Alana Alana did I say it wrong? I said it wrong. Alana. I'm sorry Alana. I always say names wrong uh, though, so I always get it wrong. Yeah, you were calling Wait, me Warren last week. Warren? Yeah, yeah Warren. I'm, I'm really still offended Warren. by Jason. Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that you know he's a, it's just the assumptions that are brought in here he's he's assuming that accomplishment has to look a certain way that if something is going to be if this is if the atonement is going to be truly described defined as accomplished if, if jesus work is going to be described that way the assumption is well then it must look like exhaustive right. divine determinism because well the provisionist version of Christ's accomplished atonement doesn't look like exhaustive defined determinism. Therefore, it's not accomplished. And it's kind of like, you know, in the person who discovered the cure for tuberculosis, he he accomplished and he 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 created this cure that was effective and that worked on his patients. 
He accomplished it. Nothing more needed to be done to cure tuberculosis once he had completed his research and his study and finally found the compound that would work to cure those with tuberculosis. Now, what would what has certainly followed throughout history from that point in time is that there have been people to whom the cure of tuberculosis was available had they received it, but didn't and probably suffered the consequences of tuberculosis because of that. So does the fact that some did not benefit from the available benefits of what this this doctor and his research and his work provided for, does that therefore mean that his work to accomplish a cure for tuberculosis was actually not in fact accomplished? Right. Yeah. And and that's just intuitive. I think people can see that if they're willing to look past the rhetoric. The the problem is, is that once you once you've adopted a particular worldview and that that rhetoric and that kind of pious preaching type of language just kind of washes over you and makes you feel this warm fuzzy inside because it's affirming, you know, that confirmation bias, it's affirming what you already believe to be true. And and oftentimes people aren't willing to think deeper to the level of what what the other side is actually saying with regard to the the provision of God's atonement and the actualization of of that provision through which is accomplished through faith. Was there anything else, Jordan or Warren, that you were aware of on on Mike's sermon here that we we did not hit on that we want to hit on to close this thing up? I, I had one more, but Warren, did you have anything? No, no, that, that, I think I think we hit the ones I was looking at. So what's yours, Jordan? Okay, so the last one I had was actually at the, tw- I think the 29-minute mark, somewhere between 29 and, and 30. Between 29 and 30. We'll just start at, this is going backwards. We'll just start at, let's start 29, all right? If he was, we would be forced to say that the Father refuses to grant those earnest intercessory requests of the Son, because the non-elect will not finally be saved. But can you even conceive of that kind of scenario? The Father refusing to grant the earnest prayers of His beloved Son, in whom He is well pleased. Lord, let this cup pass from me. Not going to do it. (laughs) There's example number one of an earnest prayer of Jesus not being granted. Just saying. Whoops. Whoops. (laughs) Whoops. <laughs> Do you want to rethink that one, Mike? That was <laughs> Sorry. easy. That was easy, I guess. Uh, all right, that was an easy one. All right, well, let's, let's, let's give For the salvation of those for whom Christ shed his precious blood? It's unthinkable. Father, I died for them. I shed my blood for them. I paid for their sins. Please save them and bring them to us in heaven. And the father says, no, my son, I will not. The implications of a universe. It's exactly what he says to Paul. Paul says, I'll give up my own salvation for them, Lord. In, in chapter 10, verse 1, and I pray for their salvation. I make much of my ministry of the Gentiles so that I may provoke them to envy so that they too may be safe. No, Paul, I inspired you to write those words. I have to use my God voice. No, God, I, no, Paul, I inspired you to write those words, but I am not going to save them even though I inspired you to pray that prayer. You know, you can make anything sound like that. Of course, why would God say he holds out his hands to them all day long, longing to gather them, but they would not? Why does he have those expressions in the scripture 
if it's not God's longing desire? Is he being duplicitous? Is he acting like he wants people? Is it crocodile tears? He just, ah, I got my fingers crossed behind my back. I really want you to come, but not really. I mean, this is this is kind of what it seems like to be absurd to say that it's getting late. I, when it gets late at night, I start getting way too honest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we need to go another hour start, and find out what you. I, really I need to start. I need to. St- I need to start slowing down because I'm going to start sounding like Warren if we're not careful. I mean, that's right. That's right. <laughs> right. That's Do a it, compliment. Man. Man. Roll up the sleeves. <laughs> that is a work. huge compliment. <laughs> Jason, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah. <laughs> J- Jason, J- Jason is new enough at this that he's still got a spirit of discernment and love. And so we, we've got to like, he's not bitter and jaded like <laughs> the rest of us uh, Christian YouTubers. Is that what you're trying to say? He's not bitter and resentful. <laughs> I'm holding on to my last. And it is getting late. late I don't know about you, man. <laughs> I, I just think that there's just, there was so much, piety and philosophy just woven in his whole that whole section that we just listened to and there's so much of an appeal to that and so and that's where it's like okay it sounds good it sounds lofty but it's not the bible it's not what the bible's saying and that's what right i think we are trying to help the calvinists see is that philosophy is is not going that's you're not getting that from the scriptures like philosophy is used in so many terrible ways and logic can be used in so many terrible ways you know one of the things i made a comment on one of my i think several of my calvinism series videos is that calvinism has had a long time to kind of work out the kinks and it's logical within its own construction of what it is its own systematic it's 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 well, logical. Certain, flavor, certain flavors of it are, yeah. <laughs> Correct, yes. But it's not biblical. We always have to go back to what does the Bible say, and that's what we need to focus on. And if you if you appeal to philosophy, if you appeal to the presuppositions that anything within Calvinism is true, you're you're going to put that onto the text, and it's and you're going to believe it because you can. You can if you go to the scriptures with any presuppositions, you're going to find it into, you know, most likely you're going to find that in the scriptures. So we yeah. got to stop doing that and and say what does the text actually say? And that was well, well said. Go ahead. Well, that was the point of of me wanting to look at this clip is because, you know, and <laughs> judging by the fact that he's continues to allude to John 17 throughout this entire sermon. I and and we probably need to back up a little bit more to get the exact context of, of when this comes up. I can't remember exactly, but it's it just it seems as if he's kind of putting this into Jesus's mouth, this this sort of prayer into his mouth in John 17, as if what as if it, his concept of what Jesus is praying for is for salvation of lost people. That Jesus's prayer in John 17 is Father, please, I've I've died for these people. Please save them. And since, you know, the father doesn't save all the world, but only the disciples, his prayer is going unanswered. And so, as Jason just put, what, where, where's that coming from? You're just inventing a prayer and sticking it in Jesus's mouth and then smacking it down and saying, see, we've, we've defeated non-Calvinism. And it's just, well, it's wouldn't, just wouldn't Jesus also pray that we remain unified? Do all of us 
always remain unified with the, the abiding in the sun? I know I don't. I, I know that I find myself wandering and doing things. Look but at this but video, Jesus prayed. Like, but Jesus, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look how far I'm, I've wayward off of the, the path of the righteous. You see what I'm saying? I mean, of course, Jesus paid, prayed for our sanctification, but a lot of, a lot of Christians are not being as sanctified or, or following in the sanctification path as they should because of their own rebellion and their carnality. Is it because Jesus didn't pray hard enough for them? I mean, what, I don't know how that, I don't know how that's a good argument for a deterministic worldview of all things, because you ultimately have to have, I guess, Jesus praying, well, God, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it always being done here on earth as it is in heaven? Isn't that what the whole doctrinal system of Calvinism entails is that it always is done? Why, why, why am I praying for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven? If your will is always being done here on earth as it is in heaven, and the fact that I'm even praying it is because you willed me to pray it. Again, it just makes it makes it it makes it really hard to follow. 